0: Some of you might remember the story of uh, Terry Anderson. Terry Anderson was an Associated Press reporter. And back in the 80s, he was held hostage in Lebanon for nearly seven years. For nearly seven years, he was chained to a wall. He suffered through sickness. He endured mental torture. He, He longed desperately to be home in the U.S. with his family. Through his imprisonment, he was given one book, the Bible. And he he took it and he read it hungrily, looking for hope or a message from God, something to help him get through and, and just to sustain himself. And then one day he came across these words from Jesus and they were like a slap in the face. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus wanted him to love his captors? And and to pray for them? To return evil with good? On December 4th, 1991, Anderson was finally released. And the media surrounded him and and reporters began to pepper him with questions. What was it like? How do you feel? What are you going to do now? And then one reporter asked a question that silenced everybody. Can you forgive your captors? like a lot of tough questions. It's much easier to answer a question like that in the abstract than the reality of your own experience. As Anderson paused, the words of the Lord's Prayer Prayer ran through his mind. Forgive us our sins as we also forgive those who sin against us. Yes, Anderson replied, as a Christian, I am required to forgive no matter how hard it may be. Now, we will probably never face imprisonment in a foreign land. And and hopefully we will never be forcibly uh, kept from seeing family and home for nearly seven years. Most of us will never face the kind of persecution that Anderson did or countless Christians do today, even today, in places like Asia or Middle East or Africa. How do we therefore apply Jesus' words in Matthew 5? to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Well, first, let's look at the context. When Jesus spoke these words at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' longest recorded discourse in Sermon chapters 5 through 8 of Matthew. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would have been speaking to a large crowd gathered around him. And, And the setting of the day was Israel, as we know, was under foreign occupation, under oppression by the Roman rulers. There had been a lot of smoldering resentment and frustration against the Romans. In fact, from time to time, history tells us that there were rebellions that would pop up that were then brutally suppressed. And so for the, the Jewish people, the Romans were public enemy number one. And if the Jews didn't toe the line, they knew that swift and brutal punishment would usually come. And So it's into this setting, this crowd, which would have been a, a majority of Jewish people, Jesus says you are to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, insinuating especially the Romans. It would have been a difficult statement for them to hear and an even harder one for them to accept. Love your enemies? It was the exact opposite of what they wanted to hear, what they wanted to do. And apparently it was the exact opposite of what was kind of the prevailing notion of the day. We can see that because Jesus says so in verse 30, 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, one of the first things that pops into my head when I hear this is where did they hear it said and who was doing the same? Over time, some of the teachings of the Old Testament have been twisted or misinterpreted or misimplied, misapplied or just plain ignored by, by some of Israel's teachers. Because, you see, one of the overriding themes when you look at the Old Testament is not revenge against your enemies. It's God's love and grace and mercy for all people to show kindness to them. But tragically, the idea of hating your enemy was being espoused somehow and had taken root in their culture. In doing so, they were ignoring several Old Testament lessons from God. For example, Leviticus 19, verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Even more explicit and practical is Proverbs 25, 21, and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, lest you think this burning coals idea sounds kind of sweet, like sweet revenge, the idea here is is not revenge or retribution. The idea is reconciliation, restoration. It's redemption of a person and a relationship. The idea here is that by, by treating someone with goodness and kindness, even when they're your enemy, that eventually they would be motivated or inspired or shamed into changing their ways. Love your neighbor. Hate your enemy. That's what's natural for us to do. That's what our culture expects. That's what Jesus' culture would have expected in the day. But Jesus was counterculture, and he calls us to be the same. He reverses it in verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So let's take it from the abstract to the reality of our lives. Let's let's apply it to our circumstances. You may not have people you consider enemies, but surely there are people in your life that you kind of tolerate, that kind of rub you the wrong way, that you avoid, that you just... Do the do the, the bare minimum to get along with them, and, and that's it. You just kind of get along with them as much as you can, and, and to try to avoid them. Uh, but the Bible tells us that we are not just to tolerate, but we are to love that person. Let's just apply it to ourselves. How would you respond if Jesus told you that you have to love your ex-spouse who cheated on you, who's not much of a, a father or mother to your children? and who badmouths you whenever opportunity arises? How would you respond if Jesus told you to love the person at school who taunts you, who gossips about you, who makes your life very, very difficult? How would you respond if Jesus told you to love somebody at work who, quite frankly, is rude and lazy, and who pushes work off onto everybody else? How would you respond if Jesus told you to love the person who mocks you because of your belief in Christ, who shows nothing but contempt for the things you value so dearly. How would you respond if Jesus told you to love people you don't even know who represent philosophies and agendas and worldviews which are clearly non-biblical? The truth of the matter is that Jesus does tell us to love those people and he does expect us to pray for them. The crux of the matter is how do we love them? But before we address the how, let's take a page from every little kid's, young, young kid's book and address the question of why. Why are we to love our enemies? Elizabeth Morris is a a woman from a small town in Kentucky, and she's a person who can answer this question. You see, she and her husband lost their only son, Ted, at 18 years old to a drunk driver, a 24-year-old man named Ted Piggage. She was angry, she was devastated, she was grief-stricken, and her anger only intensified when, when, when Piggage got off with only probation. No jail time. And so she began to obsess over her son's death and her son's killer. And she even went so far as to track his whereabouts and to, and to sometimes follow him to try to catch him, breaking his probation so he'd get sent to prison. And her bitterness and her rage began to grow and became a wedge between her and her husband and she kept chewing on all that anger and bitterness until it began to eat her from the inside out. But then one day, it hit her like a ton of bricks that her heavenly father had also lost his only son. And yet when Jesus died on the cross, he had said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And so she knew it was time for her to to begin the process of offering forgiveness to Tommy Piggage. She did not feel like it, but it was an act of her will, and miraculously, miraculously over time, God worked in her and her husband so they were able to actually establish a friendship with Piggage. As a result, Tommy gave his life to Christ. He was baptized by her husband, who was a part-time preacher, and her husband also presided at Tommy's wedding, and now they attend the same church together. Elizabeth said, I can't tell you how good it felt to get on with life, to laugh again, to finally shake free from an anchor of hate that weighed me down. Why love your enemy first? Because it sets us free. It sets us free from the anchor that holds us down, from the disease that rots us from the inside, from, from the virus that robs us of our energy and our passion and our life and our ability to love. And We love our enemies first because it sets us free. Now, her decision to to forgive and love Tommy influenced him for Christ, which leads us to the second reason to love our enemies. It can win others to Jesus. I mean, what's more unnatural than loving a man who drove a car that killed your only son? What's more unnatural than loving somebody and treating them well when they treat you poorly? It's unnatural. And when we do so, it catches people's attention, people's attention and, and we can then point them to the God who gives us the grace and the ability and the power to, to love even those who would do us harm, which is precisely what God has done for each one of us. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And a couple of verses later in, in, in Romans 5.10, Paul describes us as enemies of God, before we put our trust in Jesus. After the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was pressured, a lot of pressure, to punish the South for all the rebellion and the bloodshed that had happened. Lincoln resisted it and said, Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Why love our enemies? Because Jesus died for them. And because no person is beyond the reach of God's love. And because as we love our enemy, our love for them from God points them to God. And because, who knows, the enemy of today may be the brother and sister in Christ tomorrow. The third answer to the question of why I love your enemies is it tests and it strengthens our faith. Romans 12, verse 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Down to verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, and and here Paul quotes Proverbs 25:21 through 22 If your enemy is hungry feed him if he is thirsty give him something to drink in doing so in doing this you will heap burning coals on his head do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good Verse 19 again do not take revenge but leave room for God's wrath says the Lord it is mine to avenge I will repay As Philip Yancey, a Christian author, says in the final analysis, forgiveness, an act of love toward an enemy, is an act of faith. By forgiving somebody else, I'm trusting that God is a better justice maker than I am. When I I choose to forgive, when I love my enemy, when I release my own right to get even, my faith is tested and proven and strengthened. Because I show that I trust God to take care of things. I show that I trust God to deal with those who've wronged me. I trust that God knows what to do. And since trusting God is a definition of faith, how much we trust God in our reactions to, to our enemies and to those who hurt us deeply tells us a lot about the quality and the strength of the faith that we really have. So we know why we are to love our enemies. The hard part, of course, is how do we do it? It's not natural. It's not easy. We often don't want to. How do we love our enemies? Well, St. Augustine put it, many have learned how to offer the other cheek, but do not know how to love him by whom they were struck. In In other words, many of us know how to tolerate or how to survive or put up with our enemies. But few of us truly know how to love, love our enemies. To help us get a handle on how to love our enemies, I'm I'm using an acrostic device from Lee Strobel, a pastor and author. And the acrostic spells the word peace, P-E-A-C-E, which is, after all, what we're called to to do and establish with all people, especially our enemies, following God's example when He established peace with us through Christ. The P in the, in the word peace. Stands for, It comes straight from Matthew 5. How do we love our enemies? We are to pray for them right out of Jesus' mouth. Pray for them. That might seem strange or even phony to pray for somebody that you dislike or resent or perhaps even hate. So the first person we have to pray for here is ourselves, right? It doesn't come easily. It doesn't come naturally. And so we go to God honestly in prayer and we say something like, I don't want to love her. I don't want to forgive him. I cannot do this on my own. Please help me. You know it's God's will that we love and pray for our enemies. And the Bible tells us that if we pray anything according to His will, that in His way and in his timing, He will surely answer that prayer. So we begin by praying for ourselves. Of course, besides praying for ourselves, we are to pray for our enemies. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Christian leader who... Um, was persecuted, imprisoned, and executed under the Nazis in Germany, said regarding prayer for enemies. This is the supreme demand. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, we stand by his side, and we plead for him to God. Now, when we do this, the Lord will surely change our attitude because it's, it's next to impossible to pray consistently and authentically and humbly before God for another person and hold on to the anger and rage and lack of forgiveness towards them. We cannot hate someone indefinitely in the presence of God. And the surest way of killing bitterness or hatred is to pray for the person that we are tempted to hate. The second action step is loving your enemy is is the E. To empathize with them. To put ourselves in their shoes. Can they hurt us or help us? When we empathize with them, we begin to see them from the, from the perspective of, of the true living God. And we see that their value is intrinsic because they are created in God's image, even when that image has been distorted by, by sin. William Barclay tells a story about, uh, told by Jewish rabbis that demonstrates how God values all people, even those that might be considered enemies. In the story, the angels in heaven are rejoicing. They're celebrating because the waters of the Red Sea are pouring down over the Egyptian soldiers who were pursuing the Israelites. In the midst of the, of the celebration, God raises his hand and stops them. And he says, The work of my hands are sunk in the sea, and you would sing? Ezekiel 33:11, God says this, As surely as I live, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. If we want to establish peace and pray for others and love our enemies, we need to view them how how God views them. A person created in his image. A person whom God himself loves. The third action step in loving our enemies is to act for them. Now, you're going to notice it says serve them and you put together, then it's P-E-S-C-E, which does not spell peace. So Pastor Duck can spell peace, P-E-A-C. But it's supposed to be act, act for them. Luke 6, 27 says, Do good to those who, who hate you. In other words, help them when they need help. Offer congratulations when they succeed. Celebrate with them when they succeed. Be generous when they're scraping bottom. Respond with kind words when, their words, when they try to use their words to bait you. Look for ways to serve them. Act for them and for their best interest. And your relationship will eventually turn and change. The fourth action step in loving your enemy is to confess to them. Not always, but often, in any strained or better relationship, the blame can be shared. And it's important, whether it's jealousy or stubbornness or ambition or simply a, a misunderstanding, misperception, or, or a bad attitude. It's important to be able to, to take responsibility for your part in it. To confess wrong. Because nothing brings healing quicker in a relationship than humbly admitting wrongdoing and asking for forgiveness. It's disarming. And our enemy will quickly realize that we are serious about dissolving whatever it is between us. And then finally, how are we to love our enemies? We are to emulate God to them. Another word for emulate is imitate. Ephesians 5. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So whenever we have questions about how to love our enemies, we can look to the example of Jesus Christ and how he gave himself for us, how he sacri- was, was sacrificed for us, how he loved and served us, even though we did not deserve it or, or could never earn it. And John Sott puts it this way, Jesus seems to have prayed for his tormentors, actually, while the iron spikes were being driven through his hands and his feet. Indeed, the imperfect tense of the verb in the biblical account suggests that he kept praying, kept repeating his entreaty, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. He continues to say, if the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, prejudice, pride, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? Unless we think we can excuse ourselves because Jesus, after all, was divine, we see the response of the martyr Stephen in Acts 7. He was being stoned to death and his last words echo his Saviors. Lord do not hold this sin against them. Through the help of the Holy Spirit we can love others, even and especially our enemies. Once again, verse forty five. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sins rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? If we want the world to recognize us as God's children, we are to love like God loves. If we do not love our enemies, we are doing no more than those who claim not to be God's children. Alfred Plumer puts it this way, to return evil for good is devilish, to return good for good is human, but to return good for for evil is divine. Now our last verse. Verse 48, which is one of the most intimidating verses in the Bible. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now I sincerely doubt that anybody in the world today would claim to be perfect like God is. After all, we all hopefully know that we're flawed. So why is Jesus telling us to be perfect like God? Is that even possible? How are we to... Be perfect like God. Well, the Greek word perfect here is a little bit different than the word we use today for perfect. When we use the word perfect, we think of 100% pure, without flaw. But the Greek word here is teleos. It has a sense of maturity or wholeness or completion. And the root of the word means an end or a a purpose. And therefore, a person who is, is, is perfect if he realizes or she realizes the purpose for which they have been created and called and sent into the world. And what is the purpose for which we have been created? It goes all the way back to the beginning where God says, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness. Our purpose is to reflect God's likeness. In our actions, our words, our thoughts, our values, how we spend our time, our money, whatever it is, we are to reflect God's likeness. That's what Jesus is talking about. Therefore be perfect. We accomplish the purpose for which God has sent, in, sent you into the world. Grow into maturity and completion. Accomplish the end and the means and the purpose for which I have sent you. And we do that by reflecting God's likeness. And it is no more apparent. Than when we do it and how we treat our enemies. Jesus says pretty much everybody loves their friends and family and neighbors. Most people do that. The difference when we show that we truly love God is can we love those who hurt us? And can we love those who have ill in mind for us? Can we love those who are enemies? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. And Lord, um, Jesus calls us to do some pretty crazy stuff and intimidating things. And yet, Lord, we know that Jesus would not call us to do something and then not give us the ability through your spirit and through your word to do so. And we confess to you, Lord, that it's very hard to to love certain people and to forgive certain people. And and yet, Lord, we're called to do that. And so, Father, we pray that your Spirit would help us to be working on us, to help us to get there, to begin to pray for people who we have ill feelings towards, to to get to the place where we can forgive and yet even, and yes, even love them and serve them and, and want the best for them. Lord, it is appropriate now as we come to the table to reflect upon how you've done just exactly that for us. We were considered your enemies. We were sinners, separated from you by, by our unholiness. And yet, Lord, despite that, you, you came to us through the person of Jesus Christ. You offered us a way forgiveness and love and mercy. You acted for us and served us. And so, Lord, now as you prepare to partake of the elements at the table, we ask that we would do so humbly and thankfully, that we would do so with great reflection, that we would examine our own lives, and if there are people that we need to forgive and begin to love and treat with, with, with your kindness and goodness. Lord, I pray that you'd bring them to mind and begin to, the process within us so that we too can love our enemies. And pray for them. All for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.